This is Relic Radio Science Fiction, old-time radio sci-fi stories brought to you every Monday at relicradio.com. Our story comes from Mindwebs this week, a series that aired over WHA Radio in Madison, Wisconsin from 1975 to 1984. 169 episodes were produced. Our story today is Singularities Make Me Nervous, story written by Larry Niven and presented here by Mindwebs. Short stories from the worlds of speculative fiction. This story comes from the book Stellar One, edited by Judy Lynn Del Rey. It's Larry Niven's Singularities Make Me Nervous. Homecoming. The vast interstellar spaces have brought me back to my starting point there below me at the top of Rand's Needle. Three hundred stories of glass windows flash sunset fire at me and the taxi slants down toward the landing roof. Homecoming. I should be feeling safe and warm. I don't. A broad flight of black marble steps leads me down into the lobby. I hail the guard before he notices me. He smiles and waits while I use the key. He doesn't have one himself and then holds the elevator door for me. He's noticed nothing unusual. I hold my apartment key ready. Will he have visitors? But that's silly. I didn't have visitors that night. Twelve floors down. I stand squarely in front of the peephole and ring the bell. A voice I know asks, Who is it? Can you see me? Yes. I grin. My face feels tight. My breathing's funny. Who am I then? Hesitation. I wish I could take your retina prints. Uh, They'd match, George. I'm you. Yeah, sure you are. He's skeptical. I'm not offended. I am you, and I've got a key to my own apartment. Shall I prove it? Go ahead. I unlock the door and walk in. The shock of recognition gets me in the pit of the stomach. Tables, chairs, favorite recline chair, couch, showing the barely visible stain of a spilled eggnog. The Eddie Jones originals. The gallon brandy bottle on the wet bar. Twenty-six years in space, most of it in frozen sleep. But now it's over. I'm home. It's all here, all in place, right down to the tenant, George Cox, who's standing well back of me, taking no chances. He's holding an enormous folding knife whose engraved blade is like a broad silver leaf. I say, I can tell you where you got that. So can a lot of my friends. He doesn't relax. I didn't expect this to be easy. George, do you remember when you were, well, 18 or so? Going to Caltech? 
One night you got so lonely and so horny you called a girl you'd only met once in your life at one of Glenda's birthday parties. She was a little plump and very sexy, remember? You called her, but you got her parents. You were so nervous and embarrassed that... Shut up, all right, I remember. What was her name? I can't remember, and I tell him so. Right again, he says. Okay, remember that Kansas sunset where the blue sky was split down the middle by one dark blue beam? And you could follow it up across the sky and down into the east, almost to the horizon? Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. I never saw it happen again. He considers, then folds the knife and drops it in a drawer. You or me, how about a drink? Well, what do you think? Shall I mix? I'll do it, he says. I let him. I don't want to infringe on his territorial instincts. He goes to the trouble of mixing Navy grogs, a compliment. He's decided it's a special occasion. I don't remember that detail from the night that I was him. I cut the straws while he's at work, and he gives me a sharp look. Nobody else would have known to do that. Yeah, you're me, he says when we've settled in chairs and have imbibed some of the life-giving fluid. Yeah, you're me, but how? The black hole, Bauerhaus 4. Ah, so I made it back. They haven't even picked me to go yet. They will. He sips at his drink and waits. A black hole, singularity, stars that have collapsed all the way to a point. They've been there in the general theory of relativity for a hundred years or more. The first black hole was found in 1972 in Cygnus, circling the puffy yellow giant star, but Bauerhaus 4 is a lot closer. He nods. He's heard it before. A couple of weeks ago, by his own reckoning, when Dr. Kurt Bauerhaus himself came to lecture at the Space Branch Authority Training Center. But, I tell him, not even Dr. Bauerhaus wants to talk about what goes on inside the Schwarzschild radius of a black hole. Singularities upset people like Bauerhaus. It's time travel that does that. I don't think so. Forget the time travel aspect and uh, just look at a black hole. A mass so big that when it collapses it goes all the way to a point. Even light and red shifts to zero before it can get out. Would you believe it? He shrugs. It's in the equations. Bauerhaus said so. Relativity is peculiar from square one. And it's checked out every time it's been tested. A hole into another universe, maybe. Or into another part of this one, maybe. That's in the equations, too. And there's a path around a rotating black hole that brings you back to your starting point without even going through the singularity. That sounds harmless enough until you realize you're talking about event points. Points in space-time. He raises his glass. Skull. I raise mine. Right. I'm back before I started the trip. Most astrophysicists would rather believe there's a hole in the theory. Singularities make them nervous. Time travel makes me nervous. You can see for yourself. It's safe. He doesn't look nervous. We're both relaxing now under the influence of the drinks. It's been a long, weary time since I tasted the cold, brown, sweet power of the Navy Grog. He says, I'm only supposed to circle it, you know, and drop the probes. I know, but the uh, autopilot on the Ulysses is built to send one of the probes on a round trip through the Schwarzschild radius of the star and back to its starting event point. You uh, just take the Ulysses through that path instead of sending the probe. You can't go wrong. You go back in time about 26 years, which brings you back to the moon six months early. He shifts in his chair. 
The moon? Not Earth orbit? No, not yet. I've got Ulysses hidden on the backside of the moon. And from there, I took a jet platform to within sight of Lake Crater, then hid that. I came back to Miami on a tourist shuttle. A year from now, I'll go back to the moon, pick up Ulysses, and come home to a cheery mob. Six months after takeoff, and that'll tell him you did go through the Schwarzschild radius. Barhaus 4 is 11 light years away. Well, you can make your own decision on that. The hell, you're me, and you've already decided. I've got a year to change my mind, but look at it this way. NASA's entitled to know you can use a black hole this way. They're paying for the trip. And what can they do to me? Yeah, and I'll be damned if I'll hide out for 26 years. Right, George, uh, but just what's the point of all this? He's already guessed that, I think. Stocks. Luckily, you're already playing the stock market a little. I've memorized the behavior of several stocks for the next six months. See, in six months, we'll be a millionaire. And then we'll go through a stack of newspapers, and you'll do the memorizing. He grins. What for? We'll already have the money. I hope you're putting me on, I say a bit uneasily. He nods. I'm reassured partly, but I'm the vulnerable one. If we make one mistake in the program, if the typewriter of time writes a different history this time around, I'm the one who'll disappear in a puff of smoke. Or will I? The paradoxes are all new, and we have to guess at how they'll work out. came back from the moon under an assumed name, C. Creepmaster. As C. Creepmaster, I now rent an apartment across town from the younger George Cox. I don't want to bug him over much of my presence. I certainly bugged me back when I was him. I was afraid the older George Cox would, well, try to take over my life. He didn't, and yet he did. His very existence hemmed me in more than prison bars. I would make these choices, not those. Where the road of life forked, I would turn this way. All others were barred to me. He's going through that now. I stay out of his way. And I'm still going through it. I'm the older George Cox now, but it doesn't help. My life's planned out in the minutest detail. My free will, my illusion of free will, will not return to me until Ulysses disappears among the stars. I didn't expect this. We meet rarely during the next five months. He and Frank Curie and Yoki Lee are deeply involved in astronaut training. I'm living off his salary, but that's okay with both of us because the value of his stocks is building and building. I'm doing all the manipulating in our name. He doesn't have time. It's like playing poker with reader cards. I feel no guilt, only a vast elation. The stocks move as I command them, or vice versa. Last time through this, I wondered why the money didn't increase even faster. Now that I'm handling it myself, I know. I know there's a limit to how fast you can move money around even when you know exactly where it ought to go. I feel sorry for Yoki and Frank, he tells me. They're working just as hard as I am. For what? And I tell him, think of it as predestination. I wish I could think of a better answer. I remember how disappointed they will be and how bravely they'll try to hide it. The three of them spend two months in the Ulysses itself. 
The ship is complete now. Only the trainee pilots are not ready. I can see it up there at night, a splinter of light cruising slowly across the stars. And I remember passing the planets, passing through the cometary belt, months of fiddling with the ram fields, adjusting the flow of interstellar hydrogen into the fusion region until finally I was in clear space, climbing into the cold sleep tank. Waking at midnight, staring in awe at the way the stars had changed, blazing blue-white before me, glowing dull red behind, then turning to the tricky task of setting the fields to channel the fusion blast forward. Remember waking again to find that the stars were back to normal, using the forward mass indicator to seek out Bauerhaus 4. There, searching that point with a telescope, and nothing. Dropping probes 1 and 2 into the ergosphere, the elliptical region of spin around the Schwarzschild radius. The size of the ergosphere would tell me how much of the star's spin the black hole had carried into itself, the dimensions of the path through the singularity. Probe 1 was circling the black hole hundreds of times a second before it disappeared. 2 followed the same path, fired a jet before it reached the Schwarzschild radius and shot away at just less than light speed. And I remember plotting the course for probe 3, following it down. Am I really going to do this foolish thing? Hell, I've already done it. I remember the way the stars blurred near that empty point. Once the star passed directly behind it, and for a moment it was a ring of light. There was no bump as I went through the Schwarzschild radius, only the gradually increasing pull of tidal force. But somehow I knew I had left the universe. Free at last. Free of the older George Cox. Sure I was. Uh, we've been moving money around for five months now, I tell him, at his return. And we've passed the million mark. How's it feel to be a millionaire? Pretty good. He smiles in triumph as he looks through the books, but the smile's a bit forced when he turns to face me. He's not used to me yet. Okay, now your job. I hand him a stack of newspapers. Memorize these stocks. All of them? No, just the ones that uh, are going to go up. And when? But I haven't marked them, George. You have to find and mark them and then memorize them. He grumbles, as I did once. You've had more free time than me. Haven't we got cause and effect screwed up enough? I get this nightmare feeling that if we louse up the natural laws any worse, I'll go out like a candle flame. Look, will you do this for the best friend you ever had, please? He takes the newspapers. I don't see him for a week. One afternoon, I answer a ringing telephone. It's him. His eyes are wide, his face is white. Before I can speak, he blurts it out. They picked Frank. What? The hell they did. They picked me. They picked Frank. George, what do we do? His voice is fading. There's a singing in my head. The room is fading, going blurry. My knees buckle and I drift toward the floor. I want to scream, but I can't. I'm cold. There's rough textured rug under my chin. I feel it with my hands, and it's real. It's really there. I must have fainted. The other George is yelling out of the phone, George, George! I manage to get my face in front of the camera and tell him, Look, sit tight, I'll be right over. This time we aren't sitting, we're pacing. 
and passing each other, talking in random directions. It would look like low comedy if anyone could see us. And he's saying, we could just forget it, share the money, ignore the paradox. I hate that thought. George, get it through your head that, that the paradox is me. If this time track doesn't go as it went, I'm gone. Now, we've got to do something. Like what, steal the ship? Mm, well, that's... Look, if I steal Ulysses, you get court-martialed. You! Uh, look, they wouldn't even look for me. And how are you going to spend our million dollars in my name? Mm, damn it, he's right. The effort I've spent, the risks I've taken, all for nothing. I stop in mid-stride. Uh, maybe they won't suspect me. Ha! You couldn't get onto the shuttle field without showing your face. Hi, yourself. Someone must have been impersonating me. I've got an alibi. <laughs> alibi? Hey, I'm going to make drinks. This won't make any sense at all to some of you sober. A month to wait. A month to make plans. But it isn't. They've moved the takeoff date up two weeks. I'm starting to lose faith in any kind of consistent universe. At night, I'm afraid to fall asleep. Every morning comes as a joyful surprise. I'm still here. I wish I could talk to Bauerhaus. We braced him after the lecture. Small, round, voluble man. He was willing to talk at any length about cosmology in general. The Big Bang that may or may not have started the universe. That may have sown the universe with quantum black holes smaller than an atomic nucleus and weighing more than a large asteroid. The possibility that the universe itself is inside somebody else's black hole. White hole spewing matter from nowhere. But he fought clear of one subject. Uh, gentlemen, we simply do not know what goes on inside the Schwarzschild radius of a black hole. We do not know that the matter actually goes to a point. It may be stopped by a force stronger than any we know of. What are the paths through a rotating black hole? He smiled like one sharing the joke. And we expect to find a hole in the theory here. We postulate a law of cosmic censorship, a process that would prevent anything from ever leaving the black hole. Otherwise, we could get black holes with so much spin to them that there's no Schwarzschild radius around the singularity. A naked singularity would be very messy. The mathematics is inconsistent, like dividing zero by zero. If he could see me now, both of me together. Surely it would be singularity enough. We don't risk being seen together. The younger George Cox continues his training. Newsmen interview him and Yoki on the need for more bizarre ramjets and scout ships to seek out Earth-like worlds that circle other stars. The older George Cox plays the stock market and waits. Frank Curie has spent as much time in space as I have, up until the Ulysses flight, which hasn't happened yet. He stands about five feet zero, stocky, well-muscled. His big square jaw gives him a bulldog look. He masses less than me or Yoki, and so do the food and oxygen required to keep him alive for the year and a half he'll be awake. There's no reason Space Branch shouldn't have picked him over me, yet I keep wondering... What was different this time? Did the younger George concentrate too much on his stocks, too little on training? Did he stop trying because I was the proof that he would succeed anyway? Well, too late now. We've had one break. 
They picked me to pilot the ferry ship up and to help Frank with the final checkout of Ulysses. Frank and I go through the checkpoints together. The guards pass us through without any fuss. The shuttle field is bright with artificial lights beneath a gray-black sky. Frank's nervous, excited. He's talking too much. Muscles flex at the edges of his jaw. Twenty-six years. What can happen in twenty-six years? They could have immortality by then, or, or a world dictatorship, teleportation, uh, faster than light travel. They uh, could get that from you if Probe 3 works out. Yeah, yeah, if Probe 3 comes back about the time I leave, but that's not too useful for space travel, George. There aren't enough black holes. No kidding. George, George, what do you think I'll find when I come back? Yourself. It's on the tip of my tongue, but I swallow it. Me, waiting at the shuttle field to tell you all about it. Unless you go too far in. Then you might not come out until every star is dead, Frank. <clears throat> yeah, I know. Well, care to change your mind? Thinking there's a chance? Oh, come on. And that settles that. We've almost reached the shuttle now. It's a lifting body, not large, with a radiation shield around the tailpipe and an escalator ramp that leads up onto the nose. I'm talking too much myself. I'm as nervous as Frank. Lucky there were two gates. I half expected the guards to stop us on the grounds that one of us was already inside. But apparently he got through without a hitch, or else he didn't make it. Frank stepping onto the ramp when the other George Cox slides like a shadow from behind it. He's holding a heavy spanner. Wiry Frank whips around and plants his fist in George's belly, crosses instantly with a right plenty of class at boy shows. And George goes down like a consignment of cooked spaghetti flat on his back, his face turned up to the harsh lights. Frank sees his face. He freezes. I don't have a spanner. I use the stiff edge of my palm against Frank's neck. Frank turns, looking bewildered, and I hit him on the point of the jaw. He goes down. I take his pulse. It hasn't stopped. George Cox's heart is beating, too, but he's showing no other sign of life. I don't need to take my own pulse. It's thundering in my ears. The other George Cox may need a hospital. He's in poor shape to pilot an interstellar spacecraft. Ulysses hovers before me, enormous. There are attitude jets like nostrils, but no signs of a main thruster. Only the hydrogen fusion booster as big as Ulysses itself that'll run me up to the Bassard ramjet speed. From that point on, I'll be running on interstellar hydrogen, sweeping it in and compressing it in magnetic pinch fields until it undergoes fusion. I've been through this before. I'm not even nervous. As the metaphysical complexities grow ever more hideously tangled, my choices grow simpler. I'm going to steal Ulysses because I can't possibly turn back. I'll follow the return path again because, well, it's my only hope of straightening this out. I could have been killed that last trip through the singularity. I could be killed this time. But the ghost of the older George Cox is no longer with me. And the younger George Cox, the man I left tied back to back with Frank Curie for for similitude has become the real George Cox. There's been no break in his timeline, and no part of his timeline is me. I'm fatherless, motherless, 
a ghost without origin. If George keeps his head, he'll stay out of prison. He spotted an imposter, his own double, walking toward the shuttle with Frank. He was about to do something about it with the aid of a handy spanner when Frank exploded in his face. And that's all George knows. Docking. The whole ship goes clunk clunk. Up to now, they could have stopped me, but now it's too late. As I cross to the manlock on Ulysses, I feel a prickly awareness of the second Ulysses hidden on the backside of the moon. I found a way to breed very expensive spacecraft. I would have patented it. How did it all get started anyway? Was there ever a George Cox who followed the flight plan exactly? Yeah. And then a second George Cox watched Probe 3 return even before Ulysses took off. That gave him an idea. If Probe 3 could return before it started, then so could he. Was he the older George Cox who knocked on my apartment door a lifetime ago? Or was he already several cycles gone? And what will happen if I just follow the flight plan this time? No, I don't dare. It would start the whole thing over again. Or would it? I wish I could ask Bauerhaus. But people like Bauerhaus don't like singularities in the first place. I don't blame them. Singularities Make Me Nervous, written by Larry Niven. It appears in the collection edited by Judy Lynn Del Rey, Stellar One. This is Michael Hansen speaking, technical production on MindWebs by Steve Gordon. MindWebs is produced at WHA in Madison, a service of University of Wisconsin Extension. our sci-fi for this week i hope you enjoyed it you can find more from mindwebs at relicradio.com alongside past episodes of this podcast all the other podcasts and thousands of other old-time radio episodes our shoutcast stream is up and running there as well and you can donate if you'd like to help support this and all of the shows visit donate.relicradio.com or click on the link on the website your support makes all of this possible my thanks as always to those who have helped out thanks for joining me today Be back next Monday with another episode of Relic Radio Science Fiction.